Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Sacred City Church Online. My name is Justin Dean, and I have the pleasure of being the lead pastor here at Sacred City Church. And today is really a very special day for us as a church. When we planted this church, which will be nine years ago in July, we were driven by the desire to see the gospel of Jesus Christ preached and proclaimed here in Davenport. Our aspirations were simple and yet Lord willing, they had far-reaching implications. We wanted to preach the gospel, make disciples, plant churches, and renew our city for the glory of Jesus. That's been our mission from day one, and God has, by His grace, blessed that holy ambition. We have a thriving gospel-centered church here in Davenport that is living in community and on mission, making disciples in the normal rhythms of everyday life. We've seen many people come to faith, get baptized. We've seen marriages restored. We've seen people um, embrace Jesus Christ by faith and begin to take their faith and take Jesus very seriously. And also, from the very beginning, we've always had a desire to be a church-planting church. And out of that desire, from the very beginning, we've given 10% of our budget towards the work of church planting. We have supported the work of church planting regionally, nationally, and even as far as Kenya. We, we give um, 3% of our budget every single month towards the work of church planting in Kenya. But in 2018, we had the unique and great privilege of planting another church and sending out Pastor Sam Schmidt with about 50 folks to plant Sacred City Moline, Illinois. And also... One of our most recent church plants that we support financially is King's Cross Church in Oklahoma City. Now, Pastor Casey Shutt was an elder here at Sacred City before moving to Oklahoma City and being called by God to plant that new work there. And we are thrilled to be financially supporting King's Cross and the work of God in Oklahoma City. Now, I say all of that Because, like I said, today is a special day for us as a church because both Sacred City Moline and King's Cross Church in Oklahoma City are joining us online for our service today. Now, I don't think there's been many blessings that come out of this coronavirus crisis. I think we're all wanting to meet together in person and we realize that this isn't how things are supposed to be and it's not great. But this is one blessing. We get to virtually be together And for that, I am thankful. Um, I just want to speak for a moment. Sam and Becca and the whole Sacred City Moline family and Casey and Sarah 
and the whole King's Cross team. Uh, welcome. We love you guys. We are 100% in your corner. Uh, we are excited for what the Lord has done in you and through you and what the Lord is continuing to do and what the Lord is going to do in your churches. And I just want to take a moment to say, church planting is one of, if not the hardest job in the whole world. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of faith to step out and do what you guys have done. Now, many people don't know that. They don't recognize that. Um, but it, it takes a lot of financial risk to throw everything in for Jesus and for the, the, the hope of the gospel moving forward and to put everything, you know, to leave comfortable jobs and to put everything like on the table and to step out in faith. That's very difficult. It's also very difficult to be doing a work that is impossible in our own strength, that we can't um, just gather people by the force of our own personality. We can't be like an entrepreneur and just go out there and beat the bushes and sell a good vision and just, just forcefully create this work. This is something that the Spirit of God has to do. And of course, there's all kind of evil opposition um, People in the world don't want to hear the gospel, and so they resist us. Local governments, state governments, they can resist us in some ways. And of course, we have spiritual opposition as well. We have, we have enemies against our own soul that tell us that we are not good enough, that tell us that we can't do the job, that tell us that we're not making a difference, that, that come at us in a million different ways, that the, 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 the threat of the enemy is always right kind of outside of our mind and outside of our door. And that makes church planting especially difficulty. And then there's this, obviously, um, because the enemy is resisting us and there's all this resistance that we get a lot of criticism, a lot of critique. Uh, we take a lot of shots. And I want to speak to the people of Sacred City Moline and the people of Oklahoma, uh, of people of King's Cross. Now, you, your pastors won't tell you this uh, because they are God-fearing, God-loving, gospel-preaching, humble men men that I've done ministry with, men that I, I know personally and I love them and care for them. They won't tell you how hard their job is. They won't talk about the sacrifices they're making, but I will. And I want you to know that they love you deeply, that they've laid a lot down to see the gospel move forward and to see you thrive in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want you to lovingly come around them, support them, give them a lot of grace. They're men just like all of us, they have mistakes, they, have, they make mistakes, they have sin still you know, remaining in their life, and it's a really hard job that they're trying to do. And so I just want you to know that they love you, um, that they're sacrificing a lot, and they need your support, they need your care, they need you to come around them. And listen, I don't say that about anybody, because there are people that get into this line of work for impure motives uh, but these two men are not, one, uh, are not one of them. These, these are godly men that you should emulate, that you should strive to be like, and they love you and they love the gospel. And so I just want you to know uh, from, from me personally that uh, Sam and Casey, I love you and Sacred City Moline and King's Cross, you got a great pastor. And so love them, love them well, support them, help them um, as they're trying to navigate even right now all of the craziness of our world and all of the difficulties of shepherding people and making disciples when we're told we can't be together. It's really hard. It's really hard on their souls even. The apostle Paul talked about in his list of all the difficulties he went through in his life. 
uh, in his ministry, really, you know, beaten, shipwrecked, snake bitten, um, maligned, lied about all the stuff. And he throws in there. Plus there's the daily anxiety on me for all the churches that there was a weight he carried around the weight of the souls of his people that he felt that he was an overseer of that he when they grieved he was grieving when they struggled he was struggling when they wandered his soul was aching for them that there is a weight a pastor carries that most folks will never understand and your pastors carry those weights and so they're good pastors and so help them as they try to shepherd you in this crazy time and uh, both of you men thank you for following the spirit and being bold enough to plant the gospel of Jesus Christ in the soil of your respective cultures, trusting God to bring about a thriving church because it's his work, not ours, that brings any fruit. So I'm thrilled that you are joining us today. And uh, I am a pretty passionate person. And if you guys were here with us live, there would be a lot of laughter, a lot of joy, a lot of high fives and hugs. But this morning, we will have to settle for a virtual high five, all right? Now, what we're going to do these next two weeks is that Casey and I are going to tag team these next 13 verses in the book of Colossians chapter 3. Uh, when you study them, you see that it really is, it's a two-parter. There's two aspects of this text that we're going to see this morning. There's the admonition from the Apostle Paul to put off some things and the admonition to put on some things. And so I'm going to tackle the putting off this morning and Pastor Casey will preach to us next week what we are to put on. That's where we're headed. So let me pray and I'm going to go ahead and open up my Bible to Colossians 3. If you've got yours in front of you, you can go ahead and do that as well. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to ask the Spirit's help and we'll get into our text this morning. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning in great need. We need wisdom. We need comfort. We need courage. We need insight. We need your Holy Spirit to search our souls and to do work in us like a surgeon. We need you to open us up and do the work that's necessary in our soul that we might not even be aware of. We might be like the cancer patient who the day before they get diagnosed with cancer, you ask them, how you feeling? And we would say, hey, I feel fine. I, I feel great. But then the next day, they, they don't feel great because they've been diagnosed and there's been something wrong with them they didn't even know. That may be true of us today. We, maybe we feel good this morning. We don't even know what's wrong with us, but we ask that you would open us up and reveal to us the state of our soul, reveal to us the work that needs to be done. And would you, as the great physician, go in and do that work in our souls? Would you give us the fruit of the Spirit? Would you help us put off what needs to be put off and put on what needs to be put on? Would you think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords? Would it be all of you and none of me this morning? Father, I am a man with my own sins, with my own faults, with my own just weirdness of my own personalities. Um, and so I need your grace this morning to hide me behind your word, hide behind me behind this pulpit to speak through a fallen, sinful man like me. For the glory of your name and for the good of your people, Jesus, would you do this? In Christ's powerful name we pray. Amen. 
and amen. Well, it's never a good idea to just jump right into the middle of a letter and try to start interpreting things. Um, for those at King's Cross, we've been in the book of Colossians now for a few months. We are obviously three in the, in the third chapter, and I know you guys have been studying uh, the book of Ephesians, and Ephesians and Colossians actually has a lot of overlap. And when we see in our text this morning, um, there's the word therefore within the first few words. And what that reminds us of is that what comes next rests on the foundation of everything that was said before it. And it's especially important when we read the letters of Paul to always take this into account. Paul likes to use indicative statements before he gives any imperative statements. Now, an indicative is a grammar term for a verb or a sentence that either makes a statement or asks a question. Yes, I had to Google that because I didn't have a classical education. Now, an imperative is a command that requires our response. So, for example, the birds are singing is an indicative. It really requires nothing from us. It's just a statement of fact. Whereas, feed the birds is an imperative. It requires something of us to obey or to disobey. So we have indicatives on one hand and we have imperatives on the other. Now, this is important for us because the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, he spends the first three chapters giving all indicative statements about what is true about Jesus, what is true about the world, what is true about Christians, while he only gives one imperative in those first three chapters. And that one imperative is remember the indicatives, remember what Christ has already done. But then Paul spends the next three chapters piling up the imperatives on the foundation of all those gospel indicatives that he gave before. Now, Paul does a similar thing here in the book of Colossians. What Paul is teaching us and teaching the Christians in Ephesus and the Christians in Colossae and us by extension is that everything God commands us to do, to obey or to conform to, can only be done if we first realize the gospel indicatives, if we first realize what God has already done for us in his saving work, right? In his calling, in his predestination, in his regeneration, in his justification, everything he's done for us in the person and work of Jesus. Now listen, we can only obey, we can only do good out of the understanding of the indicatives. Okay, now let me show you this kind of indicative and imperative reality from our verses here in Colossians. We're going to look, we're going to begin by looking at verse 3 of chapter 3. Let me go ahead and read it. He says this, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. All right? Here the apostle is referring to a doctrine we've, we, we call, and theologians call, union with Christ. When God saves a person, he does so by uniting that person by grace through faith with Jesus. And when that happens, what was true of Jesus becomes true of you. Jesus' death counted 
as your own. So you no longer have to pay the debt of your sins. Secondly, Jesus' obedience is also counted as your own and you no longer need to invent any other way to stay in a right relationship with God. That you have, you have been given the righteousness of Christ and you can rest and enjoy that reality. Now, all of that is, those, those are indicative statements. It's what Christ has done for us and what is now true of us, right? These are all good. We see the past tense. You have died with Christ. Now, here's what Paul is saying in verse three. <clears throat> that has already happened in you if you've placed your faith in Christ, right? It's a past tense indicative statement. Christian, you have died with Jesus. Now, what, what do you mean? What I'm here, what, what, what has died? What is Paul referring to when it, that has already died? Well, he's referring to what he's going to call in our text, the old self. Now, what is the old self? The old self is the life that we were given, the life that came down through our first father, Adam, right? And Paul, in his writing, he uses a lot of different terms to describe this old self. He calls it our flesh. And when he calls it our flesh, most times he's not referring to our physical body. Rather, he's talking about our sinful impulse that has infected and affected every part of our humanity, our rational capacities, our emotions and our affections, what we love and our will, what we choose to do, right? Like sometimes we, we want to do what is good and right and yet we choose to do what is wrong and evil. Well, what is it? Paul calls that our sinful nature, our sinful flesh, our old man. He calls it what is earthly in us. That's what he's referring to. So if I could kind of generalize things, the old self, the old man in us is really ruled by one impulse, one overarching impulse. It is self-centered. That's what it is. That we come into this world, it's our nature that's been passed down, our sinful nature given to us from Adam, we come into this world concerned about one thing, ourself, our image, our reputation, our comfort, our desires, right? Paul says, but Paul says this, listen, when a person dies with Christ, so when they've been saved by God, that part of him or her dies, it has been crucified with Christ and we become something new. Now, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, one of our favorite verses, right? Therefore, if any man or woman be in Christ, he or she is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, there's many Christians who kind of just stop right there and they take that as their Bible verse, right? They're, they're one Bible verse. And they believe, hey, I am dead to sin. 
I am dead to my old self. I'm a new man. I'm alive with Christ. And therefore, they believe that they're going to be able to achieve some sort of sinless perfection in this life. Then they may not, might not actually say it. They may be say, oh, I'm still a sinner. But in their mind, they believe that because they're dead to the old man, that their life is going to be up and to the right, a trajectory of holiness, a trajectory that just, they get better and better and better and better and better. And sadly, they are mistaking. That is a tempting, or that is very tempting to believe, but it actually isn't what Paul teaches. Paul teaches something much more complex about our relationship to the old life or to the old man, And it's actually a lot more humbling. I wish I could say that old man is dead and gone. That old man has been crucified and therefore a new man is alive and well. And so I don't have to worry about that old man anymore. But if you've been married for any amount of time, you know that's not true. Um, If you've got children, you know that that's not true. If you've been in relationships with people, you know that isn't true. That people do change, people are made new, but there's something about the old man, there's something about our old sinful nature that just clings to us, right? That just remains in us. Now, this is how Paul says it. Look at verse 5. Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly, in you. Now that is an imperative statement. That's a command, right? That's a command from God that must either be obeyed or disobeyed, right? But again, we see the word therefore is, and what, what that's doing is pointing back to what he's already said before, right? What is already true The the reality of the truth that was declared to us in verse 3. What was that truth? You have died. Now, this is a little complex. This is a little confusing. We might say, wait, wait, wait. And listen, Paul is a genius here, okay? Paul isn't making contradictory statements. He he didn't just accidentally say, all right, you guys have all died to, to the old man, therefore put to death. Within, you know, one sentence, he's contradicting himself. No, no, no. He's not contradicting himself at all. But you might ask, well, if I have died, past tense, indicative, right? Why do I need an imperative to tell me to put to death what is earthly in me? Well, when God makes us new in Christ, he does not wipe our hard drives, so to speak. He does not empty our mind and empty us of our humanity and empty us of our sinful impulse. He does not just overwrite our wills entirely and take out that sinful impulse and just put some kind of angelic will upon us. No. There remains in us something of the old us. The old and the new are now mingled in our thoughts, in our affections, what we desire, what we love, how we feel, and of course, in our actions, what we do. 
The old man, again, denotes what we were at birth in Adam. Like we were born in Adam, in sin, and the new man is who we are in Christ, right? And the new nature that's been given to us when we've been regenerated and justified and given faith and given the righteousness of Christ. And now these two things are mingled in us, right? And so now in us, the old man is whatever is in us, whatever remains in us that isn't renewed into the image of our creator, into the image of Jesus. So whatever's not like Jesus in us is the old man, whether it be our impatience, whatever it is. I I could list it. Paul's going to list some things later. Let me just say that. Now, it's important to clarify. We are not two separate people. We don't have two selves or two egos inside of us or two souls in us that are like at war with each other. Rather, this is how Herman Bavink says it in his, um, one of his reformed commentaries. He says this, We aren't two independent beings, but rather two groups of desires and dispositions that are conflicting inside one and the same person, okay? So there's not technically two selves in us. There's two sets or groups of desires that represent the old man and the new man and dispositions that are conflicting inside one and the same person. So let me say it like this. The old self, the old man was entirely self-centered. Not that they weren't capable of doing some good and maybe even doing some altruistic things, but self was always at the center. So even when we do altruistic things from a self-centered worldview, we're doing them because we want people to think we're good, right? We're wanting people to say, that's a boy, great job, right? We're not doing things um, out of no other reason but for the glory of God, right? But when God makes us new, here's what happens. We are now, we now become in ourself, we become God-centered people. See, what, what do you mean centered? What, what does that mean? The center of your life is your source of guidance, what you go to to find out what path to take in life, your source of guidance, your source of security, what's going to keep yourself safe and yourself secure in this world and your source of meaning. How do you create a meaningful life, right? That's your source. That's, that's what it means. That's what's at your center. Wherever you go to get those three things, that's your center, your guidance, your security, your meaning. When we are self-centered, we follow our heart, right? Follow our gut, when we're self-centered, we trust ourself to keep us safe. My own effort can keep the wolves at bay, whether it's I work really hard in my job and I get enough money in the bank, but my security, my family security is dependent upon me, myself. And of course, we look to ourself to find and create a meaningful life. I determine for myself what a meaningful life looks like, Right? healthy, wealthy, successful, powerful, comfortable, whatever it is, but I'm the one determining my meaning in life. It's all based in the self. 
But here's the reality. When we receive our new self from God, right? This new self that's with Christ in God that Colossians tells us about, that new self is actually God-centered. That means God becomes our source of guidance. We go to Him to find out how we should live our life and what we should do, right? We go to Him for our security. We don't need to protect ourselves from all the things of the world. We can actually be generous with our finances and not hoard it to kind of keep some kind of safety net to keep the wolves at bay. God is our source of security. And of course, God is our source of meaning. We don't have to invent our own meaning. We look to God for all of those things. And when we do, we are actually looking away from ourselves. Like we are not becoming self-focused. We're becoming God-focused, right? Well, here's what Paul's saying. That's, first off, that self-centered impulse of the old man that is in us, it's been put to death in one sense, and it has an, uh, an absolute definitive expiration date, right? When Christ comes back to set up his kingdom and he creates the new heavens and the new earth, that old self will be abolished, will be eliminated completely from us. That old self-centered impulse, right, will be gone. But until that day, that self-centered impulse is going to remain in us alongside, if you've been made new in Christ, alongside that God-centered impulse that we've been given through the work of Christ. That means that self-centered impulse is still in us. It's still working in opposition to the new us. And let me use a rather violent metaphor. He says it here, put to death, put to death. Here's the analogy that I would use. We must vigilantly keep our foot on the throat of our old self. In the words of the Puritan John Owen, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us, right? The old man in us, in one sense, it's like a zombie, right? It's dead, and yet it still wages war. It still walks around. It still creeps in our soul. It still affects our mind and our thoughts and our affections and our wills. It still affects us. So though we are made new and we have this God-centered impulse to obey God and to love God and to serve God, we also have this self-centered impulse to be selfish, to be self-focused, to create our own meaning, to create our own kingdoms, to worship our own plans and our own families and our own things in our own life, right? Now, how do you know if this is true? How do you know if this is true of you? How do you know if you really have this old man at work in your soul? Well, Paul gives us some examples of this earthly nature, of this old self and how it works itself out in the life of Christians sometimes. And he gives us a list, two lists. They're not exhaustive, but he gives us two lists here of some of the old man's attributes and actions. Sacred City uh, 
Davenport, Rob did a great job of breaking down and, and unpacking one of the, the first of these lists. I'm going to briefly hit on both of them. And I want you to listen, listen to this and see if any of this is true of you. Is any of this at work in your own soul, at work in your own heart and your own mind? Just we'll take a look. Let's look at verse five together. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Here we go. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, that's lust over desires, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, here's, this is an interesting list that Paul gives us. And what we're really seeing is this. The first list is self-centered sexuality. Self-centered sexuality. What is that? That means my sexual life is not God-centered. I look to him to see how I should live out my sexuality that he's given me. Rather, it's me-centered. It's what I think is right. It's what I want to do. And it's with me at the center. Now, God-given sexuality is in honor of God. It's God-centered first. And then it's others-focused. So the sexuality in a, in a marriage relationship is done inside the covenant, the safe, protective covenant of a marriage where you've already united finances. You've already united names. You've already united everything. And you've moved into one home and you're together and you're saying, I give my entire life. And inside that context, sexuality is safe. Right? Sexuality, you're bearing your soul. You're opening your soul up to another, another person inside the lifelong commitment of the covenant of marriage. But in opposition to that, me-centered or self-centered sexuality is based on our own desire. So you get sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? Having sex with somebody who's not your spouse, who you're not married to, right? That's a selfish sexuality. You're not committing your whole life to the person. You're just really saying, you're, I'm interested in you and you're interested in me. And so let's just have sex outside of God's covenant and outside of a safe covenant relationship. Secondly, we see right there that, it's, that there's passion or lust. And this is, well, the sexual morality also is pornography, right? Many people think, oh, pornography doesn't hurt anyone. Pornography hurts millions of people. It destroys marriages. It destroys souls. It destroys the young women and the young men who partake in it. That it, it, it creates human trafficking. It does all kinds of terrible things, right? And it's what, what is it based in? Self-centered sexuality. Using another person for my own gratification rather than giving love to one person in the context of marriage for a lifetime. Impurity, passion, evil desires or over desires. Now listen, we think maybe that we live in the most sexual free uh, culture ever existed, but no, no, no. The, the Greeks, when this time was written, they had all kind of promiscuous relationships that the men had sex outside of marriage all the time, that they would go to temples even and part of their worship practice was to have sex with prostitutes. And Paul is speaking into this culture and he's saying that is self-centered sexuality and that is something of the old man and that must be put to death. Of course, he says, covetousness. We know this is one of the 10 commandments that we are called not to covet 
our neighbor's wife. Right? We're not to look out and think the grass is greener over there and to look at someone else's spouse and covet desire, sexually desire that person. Right? That's self-centered sexuality. And interesting, Paul says, all of that is idolatry. Now, of course, it's worshiping the creation rather than the creator. It's not looking to God, it's looking to the creation to fulfill these desires. Now, that's verse 5. So, do you see any of those things at your heart? Do you have a desire for pornography? Do you have a desire to look outside of your marriage for sexual fulfillment or sexual, or sexual thrill? Maybe, that, well, Paul says, that's the old man at work in your heart and you have to keep your foot on the throat of that old man. Keep reading. <clears throat> on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. God's cleansing, gracious wrath is coming in the new heavens and the new earth and he's going to restore all of that brokenness, that self-centered impulse that's in us to use other people for our own gratification, all of that is going to be removed by the wrath of God. Keep reading. In these two, you, you two once walked. So these people, they, they were used to living out this self-centered sexuality when you were living in them. But now, here it is, you must put them away. Anger, wrath. Oh, oh, here we go. Second list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now, interestingly, this, here, here's Paul's second category. So he had self-centered sexuality. Now he's got self-centered relationships. Here's what it's happening. He's talking about how I treat people who get between me and an idol that I want to worship, Right? So just think about it. How do you treat people when you say, I want the promotion and somebody gets in, in the way between you and the promotion, right? When you say, I want that um, sexual escapade and somebody gets in between that and doesn't allow that to happen. Well, here's what happens. You get angry, right? You get angry at them. What happens next? You begin to want their want what's worse for them. You want them to get caught. You want them to be destroyed. You want them to get fired, right? What else? You slander them. You start talking behind their back, right? All of these things are self-centered relational practices. He says this, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. When something gets between us and an idol, we will literally do everything we can to destroy that thing or that person. Paul says, that is the old man at work. Parents, just, we love our kids. When a teacher says that our kids are underperforming, our kids are a distraction, or our kids are... Now, I'm not saying every teacher is some kind of saint. There can always be problems, right? But what goes on in our heart, right? And many times, if you're a good parent, the temptation is to idolize our children, to, in a sense, worship our children. And when somebody gets in front of us, a coach or a teacher, and they say, There's, your kid's actually kind of not that, not that great, Anger rises up. 
wrath. I hate that teacher, right? We want to put our wrath. Malice, I want that teacher to be fired. Slander, that teacher, that teacher just doesn't see the excellence in my child, right? We slander, we want, we want our wrath. This is, this is what happens. This is a self-centered relationship, right? That's what's going on here. Now, if you were to peel back a layer or two of your heart, aren't many of these things present in you, right? Let me say it like this. Has quarantine brought out any of these realities? Like this, this self-centered sexuality impulse in us and this self-centered relationship impulse in us. You want other people to be about your comfort, right? Has, this, has quarantine brought? I know it has for me. Now the question is, what are we to do? Right? Are we to ignore them and act like they don't exist? I'm a new man, no big deal. Are we, are we to treat them like accidents or aberrations to our character? Are we to try to, to justify them? Right? That, that's not what I meant. I'm not that kind of person. You misunderstood me. You don't understand my heart. I just haven't had my coffee yet. My kids are driving me crazy, right? I never wanted to be homeschooled, right? I, I'm just really stressed out at work. I'm under a lot of pressure. No. Paul is perfectly clear what we are to do as Christians. We are to put these things to death. Or as another way Paul says it in verse 8, he switches his metaphor a bit from putting to death the old man to putting off and putting on something like we take off one outfit and put on another outfit. We are to put away what we have already put off. Look what he says in verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Put it away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, right? Self-centered relationships. We, we lie when we're, when we're in relationship trying to keep our own image up, right? And then we lie and we lie and we lie and lies compound on lies when we're, when we're concerned about the self. Seeing, look, that you have put off. So he's saying put away, put away, right? Imperative. Because indicative, you have already put off the old self with its practices and you have, indicative, put on the new self, which is being renewed, present tense, in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul is saying, put away these behaviors because you have already put off your old self and you have already put on the new self. You have already died, so now put to death. Here's the principle. God has made you new in Christ. Now live out of that new identity by putting off these old practices and putting on these new practices. You, in order to live out of this new identity that God has given you in Christ, that you are a new man or a new woman, in order to live out of that, we have to be consistently putting off or putting to death our old self and consistently putting on our new God-given self. See, I'm closing right now. Putting off the old man and putting on the new man is really just another way of saying repent and believe. Repent and have faith. 
Repentance is the putting off. And faith is the putting on. So when Paul tells us to put off these self-centered practices, he's telling us both to repent for doing them, right? Have you done these self-centered practices, self-centered sexuality, self-centered relationships? I've done them. I'm guilty of them. Put them off. Repent of them, right? But he's also telling us that it's just not just putting them off by confessing them, but turn from them and resist doing them in the future. Fight to resist them. That's an important point. Many think, many people think that repentance is simply just being sorry for what you have done and asking for forgiveness. That's an aspect of repentance. But true repentance involves resisting sin, turning from it and turning to Jesus in faith. So repentance has got both the aspect of confession and asking for forgiveness and admitting you did something wrong, but it's also got the aspect to it of resisting, continuing to do that, pro- that, that practice, right? Now, this is important for us because it's easy to think that repentance and faith, confessing your sins and putting your faith in Jesus Christ is something that you do at the beginning of your Christian walk, but then you move on from that to hard, white-knuckled obedience, to effort of the will. That's not what the apostle teaches here. One way to say it is that repentance and faith are both the door into Christianity and also the path we walk of Christianity. Think of it like this. We have been regenerated. We have been justified. We have been made new. We have put off the old self and we have put on the new self. We are in Christ. Our salvation is eternally secure, right? This is the door that we enter to become Christians. We turn from the worship of ourself to the worship of God. This is a one-time event. Praise God for it. It's amazing. It's an indicative what is earthly in us. We're called to put away all these evil practices and no longer be self-centered in our sexuality and no longer be self-centered in our relationships. We are to turn from our selfish practices and daily turn towards God and God and be God-centered in our practices, right? To not ask, what do I want? But to ask, what does God want for me? That's why we're to love God and to love our neighbor, right? This is what is called sanctification, right? We see this in our text. It says, as we're doing this, we're being renewed in our knowledge after the image of our creator. A glorious picture here that God is making us more like himself and he's using faith and repentance to do it. That's, that's how, that's the path that we're walking. We're, we're confessing our failures. God, I lied. God, I cheated. God, I lusted. God, I disobeyed. And Father, I put my faith in you once again that I know you've made me new. I know you've restored me. I look to Jesus who is my righteousness and I'm gonna resist this sin. And it doesn't mean we're gonna get you know, ultimate victory in this life. Doesn't mean you're never going to lust again or you're never going to get angry again or you're never going to slander again. 
But this process of sanctification, of putting my faith every moment, every moment in Jesus and repenting of my sin and turning away from it, this is renewing me into the image of Jesus over and over and over until that final beautiful moment of glorification when God makes us like himself and gives us our glorified bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. Here's how scholar, New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright describes this reality. He says, the new life that we get from God to be revealed fully or in the last day is to let itself be seen in advance in the present time in Christian behavior. As we worship God, as we live out the identities that he has graciously given us in Jesus, we consistently renew our faith in him and we turn every day, every moment from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. He is making us more like himself. Now, Paul has one last point here that I don't want us to miss. It's so easy for us to miss because of the culture that we live in, a culture that is really individualistic. It's about us, right? What Paul is talking about here is not a process or a project just for self-actualization that you can do in the comfort of your own home with your Bible and your quiet time. You know, this is a process that involves a community of people. Look at verse 11. Here in the church, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free but Christ is all and in all. Now, when you study all of those terms, those are all uh, kind of pre-modern ways to segregate yourself, right? It was religiously, the Jew and the Greek, they were separate. One was holy, one was unholy, circumcised, uncircumcised, um, barbarian. Those literally means the people that don't speak our language. They weren't Greek-speaking people. And Scythian is an interesting term that literally means those backwoods people, those, those rednecks down there, those uneducated people, right? Slave, free. This is all the ways that humanity uses to separate themselves against one another, right? Rich, poor, black, white, whatever it is, educated, uneducated, right? People like us, people not like us. And the Apostle Paul, he's saying, that's from the old man, but the new man isn't just individualistic. The new man is in Christ. The new man is a community. And inside the body of Christ, all of those things, they don't cease to exist. You're still going to be white. You're still going to be black. You're still going to be American. You're still going to be, all of those things, rich or poor, all those things still exist, but they have been placed under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. And therefore we don't separate ourselves by them anymore. The rich and the poor should be meeting in the same living room week in and week out. White and black should be meeting in the same living room, worshiping the same Jesus week in and week out, right? All of those dividing walls of hostility, as he says it in in, in Ephesians, have been destroyed by the work of Jesus on the cross. And therefore, the Christian community is the most radically inclusive group on the planet, right? The new self, who you are in Christ, only comes to realization in Jesus's new community, the church of Jesus Christ. 
the new self isn't created in a bubble of the self. No, here it is. We say it like this at Sacred City. The only way to make disciples of Jesus is the way Jesus made disciples, and that is in community and on mission. If I want to be the man that God's called me to be, I've got to be in a community of Christian people who are not like me, who are far different from me. Different races, different upbringings, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different politics. And God does something through those group of people who are following one man, Jesus Christ, right? That, That unifies all of us. I heard this example. When you are... When you have a tuning fork and you use a tuning fork to tune a piano, what's interesting is that piano is being tuned to that tuning fork, but also every single tune, every, every single piano that gets tuned is, is all in tune with one another as well, right? Or every single instrument that gets tuned to that tuning fork is in, is, I could say it like this, is in commune with one another, right? That's the way it is for the Christian. As we are tuned to the tuning fork of Jesus Christ, as we keep our eyes focused on him, we can dwell in community with one another. We can be in union and in harmony with one another because we are all in tune with Jesus Christ. Now, as I wrap this up, I just, I pray that you would do two things. One, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you'd pray. I pray that you would ask him to come into your heart, ask him to give you that new self. And he's usually pleased to do that. So I ask that you would. And secondly, if you look in yourself and you are just not happy with what you see there, you see this self-centered sexuality, you see this self-centered relational, these relational issues in your heart, and you just long for the new you, you long for the you that's in Christ, I pray that you would do the same thing I asked the person who didn't have faith in Jesus Christ to do. You would turn from your sins, turn from that old man, and you would put your faith in Jesus Christ who obeyed perfectly on your half, who secured the Father's love forever for you. The Father's not angry with you. The Father's not mad at you. The Father's not upset with you. The Father's not disgusted with you. He's not looking at you and going, really, again, you did it again. He knows the old man is lurking. He knows the old man is there. So thank him once again for the indicatives that are true because of the gospel and put your faith again in Jesus Christ and be renewed and restored for the battle that's ahead of us, the daily battle of the old man. Thank you for joining us this morning and let me pray. Gracious Father, I thank you for the work that you've done in Jesus. I thank you for the reality of Christ in us, helping us to put to death this old man that we couldn't do it without us. I pray that you would give us victory, give us courage, give us strength to continue to fight this battle. Really just the battle of faith and repentance, ongoing faith and repentance. Would you give it to us? I pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen and amen.